On this week's episode, we have Sean Goldsmith, CEO and founder of Markery. Sean is a native of New York and an Ivy League graduate who never felt like he belonged. We take a look at his early influences, where his ambition came from, and how he was able to overcome the challenges throughout his journey. He walks us through his postgraduate life starting at Oracle to his pursuit of freedom, what he defines as his ability to not be confined by anything certainly not the regular nine to five. In this incredibly insightful episode, Sean teaches us the importance of giving, not just for the sake of receiving. He also teaches us to look beyond our typical scope to find meaning in our careers. A true entrepreneur and a self-starter, Sean now employs more than 30 people at his company and is looking to expand every year. I hope you enjoy this episode. So okay. tell us a little bit about your childhood, where you grew up. Sure. So my family's from Brooklyn and my, my grandparents um, were, you know, my whole family lineage were immigrants. So most of my family descends from Eastern Europe, Russia, Poland, whatnot. Um, and a lot of us were in this diaspora, um, you know, from World War One and World War Two. So I have a large contingent of family from there. Uh, most of them settled in Brooklyn, which is where my family you know, was active. And a part of my family was from Uruguay. So from a very early age, I had like this multicultural background. For example, my mom's first language was Spanish. However, all my grandparents knew Yiddish, which, you know, is unfortunately a language that less and less people speak. So I had this like very multicultural uh, background with a chip on our shoulder, like, oh, <laughs> we keep trying and we have to keep moving. And, you know, my grandfather, for example, uh, was in Poland and they burnt down his town. And he mm -hmm. was lost for five years in Russia uh, and inscripted in the Russian army. So these are the people that were role models when I was a young child and left impressions on me. And so I didn't know that about you. And so when you were a child growing up with that kind of a background and environment, what were some of the values that you remember were taught very early, taught repeatedly uh, to you? Sure. So, you know, I'm really thinking to... Uh, um, non-traditional education so obviously you know I, I have an undergrad degree i have an mba but you know when i was younger i learned like these off-the-cuff lessons so one of my grandfathers on my mother's side he was the one that was inscripted by the russian army uh so he actually saw the nazis come into his town burn his home and then he lost both his parents and he was five years in a displacement camp and then he had to move to uh new york or chicago not knowing english he had to pick up a trade he learned it from scratch and he became really good at it. Uh, so having these people around and, and, and with him specifically, he was very humble. So he was just happy to be here. So from him, I learned like the concept to just be very grateful for what you have. So like we complain like our generation about a lot of things, <laughs> but damn, like he really had it hard. He lost everything, had to start fresh and come to a country where he didn't know the language. So that was one perspective. My other grandfather, for example, uh, you know, and I can go to each one, but just just to compare the two of them, for example, mm -hmm. he was from Brooklyn. He, he, they had very little money. So he was already he was born here. Um, his family was very religious, but he, he rebelled to a little bit of an extent and assimilated. But he was a very tough guy um, and um, he made his way in a very tough neighborhood in Brooklyn. But he was really good at garnering respect from people in his neighborhood and people were a little intimidated by him because he was, he was very rough and gruff guy. But when I was a kid, he would always bring me fishing and he'd bring me into these different places. Like, like he used to have pigeons. He used to go to trade shows and he would teach me how to negotiate and he would teach me how to deal with people. And um, I learned a lot of these off the cuff skills that you don't learn in school, like just how to be, uh, independent, how to survive, mm -hmm. um, where you could be the smartest person in a good school, but you can get crushed, especially if you're left on the wrong street in Brooklyn, but he knew how to deal with that. So, you know, I had these very different humbled perspectives that came from nothing or from very little and that they both were very successful in their own rights. Mm -hmm. So that gave me the permission to say, listen, I, I've had a more stable foundation. I have no excuses to at least you know, achieve what they've done or don't do better. And, th and they've been very good about it. Mm -hmm. you know? so, so 
Yeah, that's a common theme that I see in folks who are immigrants or who have an heritage of immigrants where they see the paths that were built before them and they feel a sense of obligation to do better, right? To not squander the opportunities or um, the chances that they were they received when their fathers or grandfathers or grandparents have not. And so Talk to me a little bit about what you want to be when you were when you were a kid growing up in this environment of, hey, you see your grandparents with incredible street smarts doing what they do best. And you have this incredible opportunity to to grow up in great schools, you know, have an opportunity to go to college. Tell me a little bit about what you want to be when you were a kid. No, that's true. And, and you know, out of all my grandparents, only my mother's mother went to college mm. and she moved from Uruguay. Again, she didn't really know English at the time. Um, and then started fresh. So most of my grandparents didn't have the, the quote unquote book smarts or, or they didn't go through that traditional education, but boy, were they smart. Um, so when I was younger, um, I was extremely creative as I still am, but I, I think unfortunately, um, as you get older, you, you kind of become a little, uh, I don't know the right word. You, you become a part of this machine and you become a little bit callous and, and you, you become indifferent and you lose that creativity. So when I was younger, I loved dinosaurs, as I think a lot of young boys do. <laughs> so I wanted to be a paleontologist and I liked ancient history, which I still do. And our my, one of my main companies, Markery, we ground ourselves in military history and we explain marketing using ancient history. So it took you know a long time. I'm 30 now. It took 30 years, but I finally found a way to have a, this passion and, and intersect it with my business. But when I was younger, paleontologist, archaeologist, um, kind of like an Indiana Jones type of thing, you know, traveling a lot and studying things, learning about cultures, because I always like exploring new things. Like my whole attitude, like even in the fraternities I've joined in college or whatever I do, I'm always the odd guy, the one that doesn't really fit in, but I learn from that experience. So I've always wanted to travel um, and, and explored the history, like ancient history, but just one point on the creativity as, as a child. So when I went to MBA school at Cornell, there, we have like this core curriculum and um, there's this team bonding exercise of like creating a straw tower. I don't know if you've heard of this one, but they take like straws or like long pasta strains and you have to build like a tower and the person with the highest tower, or the team with the highest tower wins. Mm-hmm. So they've done studies and they say, hey, who are the best groups at creating the highest tower? So the first answer is pretty obvious. It's engineers and architects. But if you had to take a guess for the second group, what do you think it is? I would say similar to STEM majors, right? Some kind of a scientific background. Uh, But I'm assuming that the way that this conversation is going, it might be a surprising answer. Right. So... Engineers and architects were the first bucket, but the second group was actually kindergartners. Hmm. I wonder because, if that has to do with the creativity, with, with thinking outside the box. Because when you learn things, it makes you cynical sometimes. Hmm. So you think you could do whatever you want. You, you become more like blue sky thinking, open-minded. So there's like a beauty of being young and innocent because you think you could do whatever you want. And then I feel sometimes society comes down on you and you become in this rat race to get into the best college to get the best job then you know whatever so when you're younger and you're not into that rat race yet you think differently so Hmm. i think a really nice step is to you know even when you get older to take a step out sometimes to try to recapture that but it's really difficult Mm -hmm. and so let's talk about that college experience for a little bit so you get into (laughs) cornell uh an ivy league college in new york was that a moment of celebration for you and your family or was it like, okay, I've made it to this milestone and now I got to double down and do more. What was that feeling like for you when you first got in? So I always wanted to go to an Ivy league school. Um, specifically, I, my, one of my heroes is Theodore Roosevelt. And, you know, he did his, part of his journey, you know, going to the Ivy league, but I've always had a chip on my shoulder, right? Mm. So I always felt like, uh, like I'm a boxer. I love Rocky Balboa. Mm-hmm. How he always gets knocked down. He's not supposed to be there, but he usually perseveres. So when I when I uh, applied to Cornell, I actually was a guaranteed transfer. So 
that meant I wasn't accepted right away. Mm-hmm. They accepted me conditionally as a sophomore. So I, I spent another year at another institution. Uh, that was a great experience. But then I came in as a sophomore. Mm-hmm. Then I applied to the MBA program. Uh, I ended up getting accepted, but I was on the wait list. Mm. So I was accepted right away. So the whole experience with Cornell, it was always like a struggle to get in, to belong, to even be there at the first place. So number one, that really motivated me, you know, on the undergrad level. Number, and, 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 and I was told from a few people in high school that I had no shot. Mm. Even though I had decent grades and G, uh, not GMATs, SATs, it wasn't the top tier. They said, ah, yeah, you probably won't make it. But that motivated me. Like when I'm told I can't do it, I really want to do it. When I'm told to do something, I stray away because I feel like I'm being forced. So what drives me is the sense of freedom. Like I have the freedom of choice. So if someone says you can't do it, I'm like, I have that freedom. No, I'm going to do it. Hmm. I don't know if that's the right mentality. <laughs> but yeah, just getting in was a struggle. Mm-hmm. And I'm very proud that I was able to overcome the struggle. And there's mm-hmm. a concept um, in religion and philosophy that there might be someone that's more learned or more religious or whatever, but it's not the absolute value of the good deeds or the religious study you do. It's the value of how high you've climbed the ladder. Mm-hmm. So if I was told I was here and I got here, that's worth more than someone who was here who got there because I had to right. jump that much more. Yeah, that's a, that's an incredible illustration. And I think what we will do is we'll find common themes throughout the conversation, right? Like I know you as a friend, I know the businesses that you have built and to have this mentality of not feeling like you were originally fit in or not feeling like you belong is a very common theme that I've seen, at least in entrepreneurs that I've interviewed who say things like, I didn't feel like I belonged in any camp. I, I, I'm not a Goldman type. I'm not a you know, banker type. I can't do this and that. So I charted my own path to becoming my own entrepreneur and my own business, my own business person. And let's kind of transition into that because when we talked before about this interview, you mentioned something that stuck with me for a very long time, which is you are driven by freedom, right? And so let's talk about after, you know, a year after your graduation and, and getting a job at Oracle, talk to me a little bit about the potential tension that you felt inside of you when you were being told what to do from nine to five and you had this burning passion to find freedom. Tell me a little bit about that experience. Oh man. And just one last thing about the school experience. So when I was at school, I went to every, at least in undergrad, I went to every extracurricular activity, every guest speaker. Um, you know, I'd sit in the first row and try to speak to them after and some of them I've still stayed in contact with. But once I was there, I was so grateful to just be in that environment that I did every activity I could, mm. you know, and I Which tried is to- a, a polar opposite of people who got in there easily. Right. And they're like looking at it as, Hey, it wasn't too difficult for me. I belong here. I was meant to go here. And so there's a lot of, I'm sure collegiate experiences, even from Cornell and other Ivy league institutions where people took it for granted and can't say the same thing, same experience as, as you had. Right. So if you, I have a friend, so I did investment banking for a little bit. He had to go through triple the amount of interviews and they gave him like a case study. They made it so difficult for him. But once he was there, he was so much more like a better prepared than everyone and, and wanted it more. And if you think like, I know this, I don't want to go too deep, but if you look at Tom Brady, he was in the very last round of the draft. He That's didn't right. really belong. And he said, once I get this opportunity, I'm going to crush it. And he wanted it so bad that even he might not be the most skilled or whatnot, even like Tim Tebow now, he's not the most skilled. But the guy wants it so badly that he might outperform someone who's more skilled, but doesn't have the desire. And I I study a um, a lot of like this, like philosophy, and there's this book called Tanya. And in this book, Tanya, there's a chapter where they say there's two fighters or wrestlers. One's more has more physical strength, but one has the mindset that they want to win. And the one with the winning mindset is almost always going to persevere over the, the one with the more absolute uh, strength or power. Mm. So I, I know I, I, I didn't answer your question, but I just wanted to. No, that's a great analogy. I mean, <clears throat> I, I think from a illustration standpoint, that serves well to tie in everything that you're going to tie in, right? Which is this idea that 
there are perhaps people out there with more of a talent, natural born talent for something like growing a business or actually being born into a franchise, right? Uh, you can be the son of a McDonald or whatever, and that puts you in a position with, that is 10,000 feet higher than where you had to start, right? But because of your drive, and we see these stories all the time, right? Tom Brady is a great example. Because of his chip on his shoulder, he's able to not only better himself, but also motivate those around him. Maybe I'll spend another extra hour at the, in the weight room, or I, I will watch an extra hour of film. Whatever it is, that passion and drive because you're an underdog, because you're a Rocky Balboa, you inspire those around you. And that's the whole point of this interview as well. So with that as a segue, let's jump into your post-collegiate careers and tell me a little, little bit about your first step. Let's spend a little time there at Oracle and then jump into what you found after. Right. So, you know, so just to, to put it in perspective, I spent one year uh, at a college, I spent a year at Binghamton. Then I spent two years at undergrad at Cornell. And then uh, I applied for this MBA program. So I never had a senior year. So think about it in the five-year period, I was moved three times. So it was always like the rug was being pulled from underneath me. I never had that stability. Mm-hmm. But in a weird way, I think I like it. I think I like the change. But when I had the MBA, it was very difficult to... Um, to get like an MBA type of job. I was, I started my MBA at 20. I had an internship at Citigroup Investment Banking. While it sounds good, it was an internship where my peers had seven years of experience on average. So it was hard because I was getting an MBA, but I didn't have the experience. So that whole idea of freedom and trying something different. So I wanted to do something in tech and I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. So I took my background in banking a little bit and you know, I pivoted to, to doing more like venture capital research and MBA school. So I said, all right, look, investment banking is probably not for me. It's, it's very limited sense of freedom in that role. Let me take some of the things I've learned and apply to entrepreneurship. And Oracle, you know, was very aggressive in hiring as you know, at the time. So I said, all right, cool. I could go to California. Everything's techie. Like when I went there, Uber and Lyft were like new concepts. And it was cool, like Ethereum and Bitcoin were new concepts. My friend told me to buy a bunch when it was a hundred bucks back then. I guess, so. <laughs> um, but it's always cutting edge. So I went there, had a great time. They, you know, Oracle had this academy. They put us up in college suites. And I, I was, for the first time, I actually was able to just be grounded, mm. meet a lot of people, have fun. Because I was always on this grind. Like in high school, I had to have good grades to get in college. In college... An undergrad had to get good grades to get a job. And the job I had to do well to get an MBA school. Mm. And then once I got the job at Oracle, I'm like, okay, I've achieved it. Now what? Mm-hmm. But once you get the job, it, it's kind of like it ends. Or like you're not sure what to do next. Unless you just want to build your way up the um, the ladder. So anyways, was in this new environment. I'm learning a bunch of things. I'm meeting a bunch of different people from different schools, which is really neat. And I was in a different environment. California high taxes and whatnot, but very open-minded, very exploratory. You go to a bar, every other person's a founder of a company or has an idea or a side hustle. I love it. Um, Where in the Northeast, it's very, at least, you know, eight years ago or so, it's very corporate, you know, like you get this job, you move up, you you work in finance. It's a different mentality. So it was great for me and it, it changed who I am. It helped me relax a little bit. Because I'm a, a little intense, um, but it, it opened my mind to different things. So at Oracle, I did sales and then I did sales enablement, um, which later on in life would help with what I'm doing with Mark. Um, and then I, I learned those that basic skill set, but I pivoted to marketing and that's where I really learned. So I went from Oracle, I had that sales foundation. But then I, I went to a French startup called Benitasoft. I ran about two thirds of a million dollar budget on a yearly basis. And my boss at the time, he told me, his name was Mac. When you're running a campaign, you have to think of two things. One, if you don't have data to back up the numbers, it doesn't matter. It's like it never happened. So it, it forced me to be analytical. You couldn't just BS your way. Um, the second thing is I was serving the sales team. So I made like a big effort to, to reach out to my sales team and say, listen, this is the marketing budget. I'm thinking of doing this. Does this work for you? 
what are the best leads? What's, you know, wh what could I do to make your lives easier? Because what I was seeing, at least in Silicon Valley, the sales people were very different background, different me methodology, different way of thinking. And the marketers had their own way of thinking. And there was this like gap between the two. So I said, I'm going to be, and it's funny because in my background, I worked for both Democrats and Republicans. I was always the liberal with the Republicans and I was the conservative for the Democrats. <laughs> so I worked for Chuck Schumer, who's now the majority leader. I also worked for the majority leader of New York State, who was a, uh, the leading Republican. So I always took the contrarian point of view. But as the marketer, I was like the sales guy's marketer, mm -hmm. you know? So I would always try to find out how I could help them and whatnot. But when I was at Oracle, I tried to gravitate more towards the marketing department. So when I was finishing up at Oracle and was doing more sales enablement, I was, I was leaning more to the marketing people. So I was always trying to bridge the gap. And that's how my consultancy started. So I would try to marry the sales teams with the marketing people. Marketing people are usually more analytical and more theoretical, but less practical. Mm. And the salespeople, they, don't, they just want the result right away. Uh, they care about the result, but not so much how to derive it. So generally speaking, so I try to bridge the two, but it forced me to go to two places that I was somewhat uncomfortable with and have the salespeople gravitate more to marketing and the marketing more to sales. Got it. And so from that exercise of you trying to talk sales to marketing teams and talk marketing to sales teams, this idea of marketing was born. Now, when you were growing up, you had this energy, you had this ambition to break out and do your own thing, chart your own path, go get an MBA at age 20. Right. Did you ever feel like you weren't living up to your potential when you were going through these nine to fives? Definitely. When I was at Oracle, I mean, I, I would do my work, but then I would work out of a Starbucks and, you know, I was just going stir crazy mm. uh, because I, I didn't like coming to the office being told I have to do this at this hour. I was a high performer. Mm -hmm. So like even at Mercury, like what we do is we define swim lanes. So we, we have a mission like this is your job, but we give people in our company the freedom on how to achieve those results within their swim lane. So we define the swim lane and you do the results. I felt, you know, at certain companies, they say, here's your swim lane and this is exactly how you do it. But mm -hmm. wait a second, if I have a way that's five times more efficient, why do I have to follow your method? The end result's the same. And I have mm -hmm. data to prove it, like from a marketer perspective. So why do you care? So mm -hmm. if, I, if you want me to do 200 dials, I'm making it up a week, but I only need to do 20, but the 20 are converting to the amount of deals you want, or, or um, let's say M, uh, SAL, sales accepted leads. Why, do you, why does it matter? So um, my, one of my mentors, uh, uh, and he's like my godfather, so his name's Doc. He's, he's a legend in franchising. He says, you could be intelligently lazy, all right? Mm. That's why people who are paid by hour, it doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. They're incentivized, in my opinion, sometimes to be dragging their feet. I believe more in paid by result. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if, <laughs> if, I, if I veered a little bit off your... Um... No, I, 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 everything that you talk about is a look inside your brain. It, it's a look That's inside how, <laughs> how you operate, how you think, and then that translates into the business decisions and personal decisions that you make. And so this right. is very helpful. So let's talk about Markery, right? What... And I guess a little step back, um, let's talk about your interest in the franchise. You know, we talked about before the interview, uh, what freedom meant and how everyday people like you and I, or like myself, could get into franchising for the sake of the pursuit of freedom. Tell us about what franchise means to you and how you see the franchise business uh, in the United States. Sure. So when I was in high school, I was in a program called DECA. It's mm -hmm. like a business organization. And I won a scholarship or I earned it, I guess, uh, for franchising. And I went to this organization called the International Franchise Association. And I, I, like, I didn't know anything about franchising. I thought franchising was McDonald's. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm meeting all these people. And, you know, it reminded me of my grandparents in a way. Like I connected with them. Mm. Where some of them didn't have like the top educations or didn't even go to college or, or whatever. Like, damn, they were smart and very successful and very down to earth. 
you know um you know i've encountered a lot of people that think they're the best you know and they wear it on their sleeve these people were very very accomplished but they were very modest about it which is unusual for me um so I, I was really impressed and taken aback and i connected with a lot of these people and at the time i was 17. so when i went to cornell and they're shoving well you kind of get caught up in the herd so there's business fraternities and you know part of what we do at, at uh Mercury's, we still work with students a lot of them at cornell um because we're showing them opportunities outside of the traditional consulting accounting finance which are great but there's other things too right like that's mm -hmm. not the whole world but when i was at school those were all the top overachievers were going there i wanted to you know i thought that was the right thing to do so it is what it is but um with with franchising i stayed in touch with those people i created a like a, a speaker bureau i partnered with um one of my favorite teachers at uh, Cornell, her name's Cindy Venez. She was rated a top professor, a top 100 professor in the whole country. And she's in statistics. So, you know, she's very analytical, but she has like that heart to connect with students. So we started inviting some of these CEOs and leaders in franchising to be speakers at the school. And they would come to the school and tell students about their paths and, and the things they've done in franchising. And the point of franchising that I liked is it's kind of like, what I've learned is to be a good CEO. So you don't want to be a micromanager because then you're taking away the freedom from your team, but you don't want to be so loosey goosey where you say, do whatever you want, because now there's no structure and there's no leadership. So in franchising, it's like that. It's, it's like the sweet spot where there's a, a specific system. They give you a swim lane, they give you a brand, they give you an operating manual, but you have the freedom to hire who you like to work the hours you like, you know, to hire correctly and manage correctly and, 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 and grow it as you see fit. You could buy more stores and do, you could go from B to C to, to B to B up to you. Um, so it gave you that sense of freedom, but if you don't have your own concept to create your own business, which is not most people, uh, you could still be your own entrepreneur, uh, and, and grow quickly. So that's what was appealing to me. And I saw a lot of these people do extremely well. So in retrospect, you know, I'd rather own a Taco Bell than be an investment banker. Hmm. Right? It doesn't. It sounds weird, right? Like you laugh, but man, I mean, Taco Bell is is a really good franchise. I mean, I don't know so so well, but the people I know that own Taco Bells are doing well. Yeah, yeah, that's and incredible. But when you say you're going to college to go own a Taco Bell, people will look at you funny, and that's the problem. Just like hmm. how people thought crypto was today's a bad day for crypto, but. And now we're dating this podcast, but um, people laughed at crypto 10 years ago. But if I listened to my friend and I put in a little bit of money, I'd probably be a millionaire now. Yeah. We wouldn't be doing this interview. You'd be in, in a, on a beach somewhere. Right. Right. Exactly. So that's, that's incredible. So there's a world that a lot of people don't know, especially from Silicon Valley, right? Especially from, I'm sure you talk to a hundred Cornell students today. How many of them are interested in going into franchise? Probably hardly any. And so mm -hmm. tell us, as you are germinating on this idea, you know about franchising from your undergrad days, in, uh, your days at Cornell, and you are working nine to five, you're working side hustles at Starbucks after work. How <laughs> does this markery come about? And at what point do you say, this is it, I'm going to go full steam ahead into this venture? It's difficult. So, you know, I was moonlighting at my marketing job and more and more people were interested and the company was downsizing. So I was at a point, should I look for another job or should I, you know, do this? And th there's so many things like, again, like you, you learn, this is like my grandparents teaching me, right? So if you have your own business, for example, and you buy a computer, that's something that could be a tax deduction. You don't learn these things. So you could be making less money, but you could actually start buying things that are expensive for the business hmm. and you don't learn that concept so in a way being an entrepreneur once you start it's a little scary so it's like there's two examples the, the easy one's like shooting a rocket ship there's so much friction to get through the atmosphere but once you're in orbit it's very easy so you have to create a legal entity you have to get accounting you need to do get insurance you need to get payroll right so there's that fixed cost um, but once you're there, if let's say you make a hundred grand, just to make it easy, you could start investing in the company and you could have it as a tax deduction where if you make a hundred grand at a normal job, you know, you're, you're going to get taxed. So 
there's a certain break even where you might make, I'm making an example, you might make 80,000 in revenue for a year versus 100,000 in a regular job, but your net is the same, right? But you mm. have the freedom in the 80,000 one to, to, to work when you want, if you manage your time right, who to hire, who to work with, right? So I saw that vision. So I worked as long as I could until I knew the company, you know, my time was more or less up. And I decided, and I was looking for jobs too, but I had one or two major clients at the time. And I said, this is really great. You know, I, I'm enjoying myself. I have the freedom of my schedule and I'm earning, you know, a good amount. So I stuck with it. And at that time too, I, uh, I moved back to live with my parents for a while. So I had the humility to say, listen, I need to save on costs to do this right. I did get like a WeWork type of office. So I had that. And by the way, I, I became a partner in another company from someone just listening to me talk and we became friends and we worked together. So mm. that was good. But I had the humility to take a step back to go three steps forward. Mm. And a lot of people have that hard time swallowing that. Like even for franchising, you know, I was a visiting lecturer at Cornell, but I never worked in a franchise. So I had this thing, this insecurity. I can't be teaching this without that experience. So I moved to Atlanta and I worked in my, uh, you know, Doc, you know, the person I referenced earlier, mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, great teacher to me, a mentor. I worked in his cookie stores to really understand that experience. So I had to take a step backward to go three steps forward. Mm -hmm. And I think that mentality is what trips up a lot of people. Like they think they have to keep climbing the ladder mm -hmm. like that. But sometimes you have to go a rung or two down to go back up. Like if mm -hmm. your shoe's untied and you're trying to go up the ladder, you're going to fall and lose all the steps. You have to take a break, tie your shoe, and then go back up the ladder. Yeah, that's uh, an incredible illustration. So as you are jumping into this venture, there is no, there is no proven path, right? There is no, hey, this is what you should do. As you could see that in the nine to five, right? You do this for five years, you move up, and then you get promoted, and you do another thing for five years or 10 years, then you move up slowly. This world, to me, seems more like a blank canvas. So how do you create your own experience? How do you overcome your challenges? Are there, like you said, Doc was your mentor and your teacher. Who Still else? Did you, <laughs> exactly. Who else do you go to? What resources do you look up to find a way to make this, make this work? Gotcha. And, and just one other note, just to tie into that. So actually creating a startup, if you can get over that initial friction, uh, is actually in a way less risky. And the reason I say that, hmm. you control if you're employed or not, as long as you put the time into your business and you vet it. Uh, and you can control who you work with. So you might be stuck on a bad team and you can't really do anything about it. Here you can control it. So And... Uh, if you're working a regular job and, and there's a time for it, like you, you're getting paid to learn, right? School, you pay to learn, but your first or second job, which I needed to become who I am today and who I'm still becoming, I needed that experience. So I was thinking of it. It's like, like an addendum to school, getting paid to learn, right? So you need to get paid to learn, but at some point I want to be in control of my destiny. So that's, that's another point about entrepreneurship, but to answer your question. And, and by the way, for people that are listening to this, if you're at a job right now, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you're interested in doing your own business, there's nothing wrong with moonlighting. Take that time mm -hmm. you're watching Netflix from six to nine or the weekends and work a little bit, even if it's five hours a week to work towards that. And that's how I started. Mm. Now, yes, uh, you have to have humility. And, you know, sometimes, you know, people confuse arrogance with confidence. So confidence is you believe in my, and this is my opinion, I don't know if it's right. Confidence is believing in yourself, but I think having a little bit of humility about it to know, I think I could do these things, but I know I need help. I know I need to be better. Arrogance is you think you could do it or you, you really think you could do it, but you think that you're the best and that's wrong. And those people will eventually burn out and lose. So when you're confident, but you have the humility piece, which I think you learn over time, people are willing to help you. So I have people that are much more experienced. They've run much larger businesses who are on my board. You know, mm. I have people that have had hundreds of franchises on my board, private equity people on my board, top lawyers on my board. The friend I told you who created his own service company and that's uh, like a very successful Salesforce development agency is on my board. Right. Um, How know, do you ask who, these people for help? Do you just find them and then ask for help? Because that is, again, also 
a very difficult concept for people, perhaps not with your background, but people who are thinking about, hey, I want to find teachers, I want to find mentors, but who, where do I go? Do I, how do I ask? Right. So, so how do you have the audacity and the gumption to ask these people for help? So if you recall, when I was a student, I invited all these franchise speakers to speak. Mm-hmm. So I was I didn't have an angle. You know, I just liked learning and I thought it was cool to invite them. But over time, I built the relationship. And then when the timing was right, you know, now that I have a business and I'd asked some of those people to join, they already knew me. Um, someone, you know, I have someone on my board. She's probably my best friend from MBA school. She's helping. Right. So. I built relationships with these people first. I think sometimes, and it comes to a lot of things, people don't reach out until they need something. Mm. So I know it sounds cheesy, but you should always be looking, um, number one, to just connect without a motive, just to like learn, be friendly with people. And if it's no sweat off your back, right? Like I said, hey, I know some people that I can connect you to, or hey, this is some cool resources, do it. Because eventually I think good karma will breed good karma because people say, this guy never asked for anything. He just gives. I want to give back. So mm-hmm. it, it's actually, I was reading a book called, it was called Force Versus Power. Mm-hmm. So Force is saying, hey, Eric, you got to hook me up. You need to do this for me. You need to do that. Power is saying, hey, Eric, I'm going to give you these things. You know, Let me know if it helps. Let me know how I can help you. Mm-hmm. And then somewhere in the back of your mind at some point, and, and I'm not looking for it, right? Mm-hmm. But there will be a group of people say, you know what? This guy's always taking care of me. And then you notice something. Say, oh, wow. This, I'm going to connect this person or I think I'm going to tell Sean about this. And that's mm-hmm. how it works. Mm-hmm. People are too tit for tat. They're all black or white. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of like gray mm-hmm. and that's not always so clear, but I think if you do the right thing or even in our sales, when we're talking about our sales, instead of saying, Oh, you know, we have a special deal mm-hmm. or, you know, this is our campaign and we show our best two or three campaigns. I say, look, I think this might be right for you, but let me tell you about the worst campaigns we've had. This is why they failed. This is how we corrected them. If you want to work with us, this is how you could work with us. But by taking that off the beaten path approach and not being so tit for tat, I think it mm-hmm. goes a long way. And people appreciate that because it shows that you have that you're genuine. Mm-hmm. I think especially with you know digital and you know COVID, it's hard to judge if people are genuine or not. And again, that concept from Tanya because I like studying these things. And I wish, like, if I could go back into school. I would study more philosophy and history. Mm. Um, you know, I studied a class on human bonding. I studied a class on wines. I studied a class on Machiavelli. But this is my last semester or two. Wish I did more of that than like 15 finance courses. Um, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, oh, now, now I lost my train of thought. But I was just saying more or less, when you're genuine about it and authentic, you'll get a lot more out of it. Mm-hmm. Oh, so that concept in Tanya. So there's three ways, there's three, I don't know the right way of saying, but there's three things you could do as a human. Uh, You could think, you could speak, and you could act. So we all get caught up into the thinking and speaking, right? So you have a thought, and then it comes out. And and, um, even Machiavelli, who's very, I was going to say Machiavellian guy, that doesn't work, but he's very cutthroat thinker. Um, He said, don't look at the hands. I mean, don't look at the words or the mouth. Look at the hands of what people are doing. So thought and speech are nice, but what have you done? Mm. What's your track record? So, and there's a guy in the International Franchise Association. He's very well-respected. His name's Sid Feldenstein. Mm-hmm. He always says, are you talking from your thought or from your experience? Mm. So actions is what's most important. What are that's you the hardest, right? That's the hardest thing to do. Yeah, I could say, hey, Eric, I'll hook you up or... Hey, I, I think I'm going to help Eric. I'm going to tell Eric I'm going to do it, but did I actually help him? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. I don't even say or think it. I just need to do it. Once right. you do it, that's the easy thing. Or people, they talk a big game, they name drop, whatever. But what have they actually done? Have they created their own company? Or are they kind of um, like leeching onto other people and name drop? What have they done? What have you done? What's your experience? Mm-hmm. And then if you go deeper and this is more of the marketing mindset, what's the analytics behind it? You, can you show me what you've done? So my friend who started a company and now has 40 employees, he has 4 million in revenue from just the concept. He's done something. I have respect for him. Someone that says, Oh yeah, I'm a big shot or whatever. And then you look at their LinkedIn and you see like there's one employee and they said they have employees. you know, it's like not the same. Yeah. But usually 
and then I'll, I'll stop. But usually the people that are doing these great things, they don't have time to really brag about it because they're mm. so actually doing stuff <laughs> that I think that there's no time to be arrogant and that they're humble because they say, listen, I'm at 4 million, but how do I get to 10? What, what, mm. what, what, what could I do? You know? So in a way, just being so driven and, and whatnot, I think adds that humility later on. Well, that's huge. And so we talked a little bit before about this. You also are a minority owner of a business called officerlist.com. And right. I checked it out and I was telling my wife and she was like, what is this product or website or service? And I interpreted it as a zip recruiter or an indeed for post military or police personnel. Did I get that right? right? So it's called the Leo law enforcement officer. So that could be someone in the police that could be FBI, CIE, uh, you know, corrections officer, anything like that. So how did you get into this? Um, it's something that is not, I would assume, related to your franchising uh, agency. And so right. t t tell us a little bit about this business, how you got involved. Um, yeah. Sure. So, I mean, the two things that really excite me industry-wise is franchising and digital, like being in Silicon Valley and tech. So I, I like everything with tech. So remember, I was at my parents' house and I was trying to save money building my business. Uh during that time, I worked in a WeWork type of situation, and this guy kept overhearing me uh, speak, and I don't know how exactly it came to fruition, but he's like, hey, I don't know exactly what you do, but from everything you say, I, I need someone like you. So we started working together, and over time, I became a partner. So the concept of Officer List, it was like a challenge. So he had a, So at Markery, we have three things we discuss. It's called the three Ps, and I'm not talking about PPP loans. Um, it's persona, pain point, and purpose. Mm -hmm. So if you start tying these concepts that, you know, I was just throwing out. So he had experience of 17 years as a former NYPD officer. Unfortunately, he, he got in a little bit of an accident and he had to retire. Okay. So he knows the persona inside and out. He knows their pain points. So what are mm -hmm. officers struggling with? Retired and active. And what's our purpose? So what are we providing to these officers? So at the time, the main thing was finding them part-time or full-time work for retired could be full-time for current officers could be part-time. They, they could be a bouncer. They could be a private driver and we'd find them these opportunities. So instead of going big, we focused on people in the NYPD. Why? Because our founder is from the NYPD and it's a mm -hmm. simple concept of marketing. People try to go really wide. Mm -hmm. It's better. You go very, very narrow, crush it and then grow. Mm -hmm. So we did that. And, for me, it was my first time building a marketplace from scratch. Um, you know, we recruited someone else. He's a really smart guy, technical. And, and it took a while and it was really slow growth. But now we have several thousand users. Uh, we placed many people in jobs and we're still growing. But we focused on a core target market and a core competency, which is helping them find jobs. Mm -hmm. And now we're expanding it. That's awesome. That's an awesome story. And so for the last segment, this is a question that I ask all the, all the guests. Sure. And... It's my favorite part because throughout the whole interview, I learned more about the person, their, more about their challenges and their, their ability to overcome those. And I feel like you and I share a very similar upbringing. And um, as a child of immigrants, these are all very, they resonate with me very well. And so the question that I ask is, what advice or suggestion or comment would you give to your, your younger self? struggling with your drive and ambition wherever you went, right? So looking at your story, you know, you are hustling at Cornell, you're hustling at Oracle, you're hustling at your job. To me, your life has been just a full throttle go, 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 right? And at some point, I would imagine you would, you have wondered, yeah. What's next, right? I'm trying really hard, you know, I am going to get an MBA at age 20. I don't feel like I belong. There must be a sense of um, not despair per se, but there is a sense of uh, you know not belonging, right? And so what advice would you give to a younger self going through these struggles? So I'll, I'll tell you a story. So in my yearbook, I wrote, I want to be a CEO of a company. Mm -hmm. My brother, who's wiser than me, he wrote, I want to be happy. 
<laughs> as his like 10 or 20 year target. And he's in med school and he just was inducted into, um, it was called like, um, it, it's a society for people that are very empathetic and, and very virtuous to specifically to their patients. Mm. Right. So he has this deep connection with people. And I'd always joke with him that I would read Sun Tzu and he would read Lao Tzu. <laughs> <laughs> so he's, he's of a different mindset, but if you think of power and force, force isn't always really good. You can get people, you could force people to do things, but what's much more powerful is if you intrinsically motivate people and yourself. And I think when you, if you think about everything you said, they're all self-accomplishments, right? Like I got this job, I got this um, degree, I got uh, whatever, you know, I bought this. It's all about me, 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 fulfilling my needs, my needs, my needs. But then to elevate that, and I think, see a lot of people struggle with this. Now you want to do something that's bigger than you. So at Markery, I didn't build Markery. I built an organization. So I found some good people. And a lot of these people grew with me. And now they're running Markery. Now I help and I give advice and I try to help them in their swim lane. But I'm investing in people. And then the people are supporting me and I support them. So it's bigger than me now. Markery used to be Sean. <laughs> Markery now is over 30 people and over 50 clients, right? much bigger than me. I can't manage 50 clients. I can't manage 30 plus people. Mm -hmm. So I think number one, you're, you're taking a jump from me, me, me to us, us, us. Mm. And you have to have some humility and you have to care to some degree about the other people because it's like high tide rises all boats. If you do well, they do well. If they do well, you do well. And it could be partners. Like I have an officer list. It could be, you know, like my team, like I have a marker, whatever. The second thing, it's like that concept of going up and down the ladder. Sometimes you have to pause because if you're running in the wrong direction really quickly, what's the point? So I've had businesses that have failed. Like I've had some startups and we cut bait quickly because it's a sunk cost. So I knew this isn't, it was a good learning experience. I lost, but I lost the battle. I didn't lose the war. If I keep mm -hmm. doing this, it's going to be like a war of attrition and I'm just going to grind myself till I'm done. So I've started to do things like, for example, boxing. It's my outlet. I love it. It really helps me think. Um, I, again, I, Theodore Roosevelt's my guy. I, I, I have so many books about him. I've gone to Sagamore Hill a ton of times where he, he it was his summer home as president. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this guy, when he, after he was president, he did a ton of active rest. And that's something I've struggled with. So I need the time to reset. But most people, when they relax, they watch Netflix or they're so chilling or they get dinner. I'm not like that for active rest. I like the box. I like the fight. I like the hike. I like the fish. So I've realized that I've misunderstood taking a break and rest. Mm. I, everyone needs to take a break. There's a Sabbath. If you're, you know, any of the main religion, you know, the, the, the three core, you know, Jew, mm -hmm. the Jew, Jew, whatever it is, Jewish, Christian, mm -hmm. Islamic, they, they have some type of rest. And, and most cultures have some type of rest even like the concept of siestas to recharge, right? Mm -hmm. And that's not even a religious concept. Um, but the idea of resting doesn't mean you're just sitting down. Mm. So for me, resting is doing things that are active, that challenges my mind, but in a creative way, like when I was a child, like the paleontology, mm -hmm. the archaeology, you know, I love Roman history. I have like swords and uh, sabers and ancient coins and you know, all these things like reading history excites mm -hmm. me and it's fun, you know, training like I'm a gladiator as close as I could be to today. It's fun. It excites me. And Theodore Roosevelt has a concept that in order to have a sharp mind, you have to have a sharp body and the sharp mm -hmm. body shapes the mind, you know, even um, I forgot his name, but the guy who plays Jim on the office, mm -hmm. he, he changed roles. And now he plays like this action hero. And he says, when I was working out, my mind changed. And then my thoughts became more sophisticated and deeper. And then it, it helped me become stronger. So I think to have a strong body, build a strong mind. To build a strong mind, build a strong body. So my rest, when I'm not working on a computer and standing or sitting down, I want to be hiking. I want to be moving. Mm -hmm. uh, but my moving is rest. Mm -hmm. And a guy like Theodore Roosevelt, when he was sitting down on his laurels, he became depressed and sad. And I'm the same. Because if I'm not moving or doing something, I'm not happy. So pausing is very important. Everyone got to do it, but the way we choose to pause, that's up to your own, to that own person. And that's where I think people miss it. So yes, I have headspace. Yes. I try to meditate, but 
my rest is active. So find your rest, find your pause, whatever you need to, in whatever way you need to. Right. But don't think that a pause is like you have to sit down and just like chill or do yoga. And that's fine if that's what, what relaxes you. But your pause could be something that's active. You know, that's, that's then, a new concept for me. I like that. Yeah. And then my brother taught me this, but, you know, I'm all about force, you know, and there's this concept. I think it's Lao Tzu how he says, if you want to be, if you want to flow um, down the river, instead of trying to break the rock, just gently part through the rock. And mm. even uh, Sun Tzu, he says the, the, the best form of, def- uh, of victory is when you don't expend blood and gold. Mm. Right. So you could fight and you could win, but that's not pure. Like you've lost lives. You've expended right. a lot of energy. You've, you've lost a lot of, I don't know who uses the word bullion, but okay, you've lost bullion. <laughs> uh, but that's inefficient mm-hmm. and it's, it's stressful. It's better to, to find the intelligently lazy, as Doc says, way. And then you could spend that extra time and that extra energy doing things you enjoy. Be it more active rest or more passive rest. And that's up to you. Yeah. But I've started to be conscious, and, and especially with technology, um, to take pauses. It's hard for me, but I know I need to, to find those times to be creative. And ideally, I'd like to spend one day a week to just have nothing on my schedule, like a weekday, to think like blue sky about my company and my endeavors. And then at least once on the weekend to do active rush. Mm-hmm. And as things start to normalize, I'm going to continue doing the boxing because that's I've always been in my top form when I'm boxing mentally, believe mm-hmm. it or not. <laughs> well, Sean, you are a natural born teacher and your story is incredible uh, so far. And I can't wait to see what you do in the next 10 years. So thanks for doing this. Thanks for spending time with me. I learned a ton from you and your experience so far. And uh, I'm, I'm so grateful to call you my friend. And uh, I can't wait to, uh, to connect again like this. Thanks. Of course. No, thanks for having me. This is awesome.